Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Richard Vetter. He's an economist, historian, author, and columnist. He's also a professor emeritus of economics at Ohio University and senior fellow at the Independent Institute. Additionally, Dr. Vetter is the founding director of the Center for College Affordability and Productivity in Washington, D.C. We're talking about the enrollment crisis at many colleges and universities and what the future holds for higher education. Dr. Vetter, we're facing enrollment issues, and in some say an enrollment crisis at many of the colleges and universities across the country, especially state and public universities. Some of that, I understand, is demographic, but not all of it. That's a pretty good description of things, Tom. Uh, enrollments peaked in 2011, which is now eight years ago. And if by enrollments, I'm talking about all enrollments. I'm ca- talking about community colleges, for-profit colleges, two-year, four-year, everything. If you add it all up, in 2011, we were well over 20 million, around 21 million. And now we're around 19 and a half. We don't have the figures in for this fall yet, but there's a widespread expectation on the part of everyone that the numbers will be down again. So this will, we're down eight years in a row. Uh, and uh, that's quite a decline. It's historic first, I think, in American history. We've had periods where enrollments fell. We were in wars and so forth. We had temporary declines in enrollment and sometimes even for a year or two after. But even during the Great Depression, which was when we had 25% unemployment as a nation, we had rising enrollments. So this is unique and somewhat different. Demographics are playing a little bit of a role, and in our state and in the northeast uh, part of the country, more of a role. If you go to Texas or Florida, uh, where uh, population growth is robust, they don't have that. They're not talking about falling enrollments or anything. They're not worried about it. They're even those states though are having much less growth than they were before. So it's a changing environment. And I've read many of the articles you've written on this, and 
you you say that the elite schools or certainly the well-endowed private schools are are not facing the same issues as state schools. Yeah, that's that's right. It's uh, there's a, what some people would call a flight to quality in higher ed. Now that's equating eliteness with quality. Uh, but even if you extended it beyond the private schools to the top state schools in the country, the University of Michigan, University of Virginia, uh, Berkeley, uh, North Carolina. Uh, schools of that nature, none of them are talking about enrollment problems. The fact they have more applicants than they uh, want. In fact, Virginia Tech, which I don't put quite in that category, a good school though, uh, this year bribed students not to come because they had more acceptances for the freshman class than they anticipated, uh, and they ended up with not enough dorm rooms. So in order to equate supply and demand, I guess. They bribed some of the people who had accepted to wait in a semester or a year and come back. So, uh, and so the very good schools are doing fine. And indeed, uh, there seems to be a growing feeling, I think, among kids who are contemplating college that college is something we ought to consider, probably something we ought to do, but that there's, they're beginning to realize there are certain risks associated with going to college. There's a risk that you may drop out, you may not get through. Uh, there are risks associated with borrowing a lot of money. Uh, there's risks associated with the fact that some students do get through and then end up ending up working at a coffee shop as a barista or uh, in a big box retail store uh, stacking uh, goods or running cash registers, jobs that they could have done with a high school diploma. And uh, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that all college graduates are in that category, or I'm not suggesting that college is a bad investment for many people. And uh, I would be... In my fi I'm in my 55th year of teaching, so I would be a traitor to the class to make that claim. But the evidence is, is that there's growing doubts about college. So people are trying different things. They're going to coding academies uh, where you learn how to code, do computer coding. And uh, you uh, uh, there at one uh, rather prominent chain in that area, they do something rather interesting that's so different. Uh, you go for six months. If, if you get in, only about 15, 20 percent actually get into this coding academy. But if you get in, you go for six months, you graduate, you're almost certain gonna, certainly going to get a job. It probably pays forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. You pay tuition, no more than fourteen thousand to go to the coding school for six months. But for many students who don't even have the fourteen thousand, they say, "Come for nothing. Come, and when you're done, give us twelve percent of your income for three years, and uh, we'll make a deal with you. Let's make a deal." 12% of your chem income, sometimes it's 14, sometimes it's 10, mm -hmm. but on average about 12%. Sometimes it's only two years, sometimes it's three. The school makes some estimate, I guess, at the beginning, what is the best deal for them. 
and and this particular coding academy I'm talking about is for profit. It's 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 actually in business to make money. They make money charging students nothing. Of course, they are charging students. In fact, they hope to make a good bit of money right. off those students. Uh, they're it's they're not stupid. Uh, and that's an altogether different kind of model than we're used to in higher ed. And I think the uh, development of these kinds of uh, new approaches to learning and certification of competency are starting to eat away a little bit at the higher ed area. And the schools with sort of mediocre reputations or sort of regional reputations, not only poor quality state schools, but uh, low quality or less national reputation private schools are suffering quite a bit. So if we look at the cost side of all of this, we, we see universities saying our costs are uh, getting higher and, and higher. Therefore, we have to pass these along to our consumers, namely students. Uh, we've had some tuition caps in various parts of the country, but tuitions keep going up and up. Now, when when you hear a university say that, that their costs are going up, what do you look at to determine whether that's legitimate? Well, there's a lot of different ways going about it. But one thing you obviously would look at if you're interested in that question is, well, what are the universities spending their money on? And universities are labor-intensive enterprises. All of them are. Uh, Harvard is. Uh, Hawking Community or Hawking College is. It doesn't matter what kind of school. Labor is a big part of the equation. Uh, in fact, teaching is, a, and you you can relate to this, Tom. Teaching is a little bit like theater. Yeah. You get up in front of an audience and. You you act, and that's the way Shakespeare. I mean, the, it takes as many actors to do King Lear today as it did <laughs> when he wrote it in 1600. So that makes it very difficult to change in 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 at least some dimensions of college. But the big costs that have expanded in the last 25 or 50 years have been uh, non-instructional costs. Uh, that includes administrative staff and uh, personnel. Some of those are people who are support personnel, uh, IT people, uh, uh, people working in libraries and so forth. But some of them are doing administrative work. And if you talk to faculty people, you, you brought 50 random faculty together from 50 different schools in the country put them in a, a room, give them a drink or two to warm them up, uh, and within 10 minutes, they'll be complaining about too many administrators. Rightly or wrongly, they'll be complaining about it. And it doesn't matter if it's Harvard you're talking about or Hawking College. They're, that's what is a subject. And I always thought that well, this is sour grapes on the faculty part. They're just jealous or something. Right. Uh, and but I look at the data. There's a, there's a good bit of substance to it. So that's one thing. 
at other school, you know, it varies from school to school. At some school, some people complain in a school such as Ohio University uh, that we're in the Mid-American Conference and that we are competing in the shadows of the Big Ten, and so we have fairly substantial subsidies for intercollegiate athletics. Sometimes that gets overblown, I think, as an issue, but it's not inconsequential. It's 20-some million dollars at a school like OU or Kent State or Miami, uh, and that's a thousand bucks a student, so it's not inconsequential. So some of these things are going on as well. Uh, I think the student loan program, the federal programs, I think have played a big role in this. Um, and there's been a lot of debate about that, but the scholarly research that's uh, high-quality high scholarly research, the National Bureau of Economic Research, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, all these uh, pretty well-regarded research organizations right. are coming in with studies that show that uh, a large part of the money that kids receive from the federal government in student loans gets eaten up by tuition increases. And the schools know that the kids can get the money. They know that they'll find some way to pay for it. That's sort of the attitude. So we can raise fees to cover whatever it is we want to do. Some years it's uh, we want to pay the staff more or faculty more. Some years we want to uh, start a new program. Some years we want to build a ra lazy river, whatever <laughs> a lazy river is. We don't have them here in Ohio, but they're big down in the south. And we, we try to provide uh, amenities that students like. That's another uh, part of the rising cost is amenities. Uh, uh, as you know, uh, the buildings today are a little more fancy, a little more opulent, big atriums and spacious areas, very comfortable, very nice, pleasant places to work, but they're, they're, more, they're more costly to run and they're more square foot, footage and so forth. I think we all know that. I, I, I remember when, when I was an undergrad, I, I think a military barracks would have been a step up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look at the dorms. I mean, the dorms were, you know, two people crammed in, or sometimes three, even three yeah. into small spaces, uh, a bathroom down the hall used by 30 people or 40 people, no privacy, nothing, and limited choice in the dorms for food. And nowadays, you know, they've tried to upscale it and Kids have to have marble uh, countertops and uh, things that I don't have. Stainless in my, steel. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't even have these things in my own home, right. uh, but the students got to have them, and so it adds to cost. So, as a student is is looking at this, or perhaps their parents, uh, they're looking at these additional costs. There's got to be a point of no return, though, isn't there? There's there. got to be a point. And I know you study this all the time, but there's got to be a point where costs max out in the marketplace. Have we reached that point? Y yes, okay. I, I think so. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, enrollments are falling. Well, right. why are enrollments falling? It's, it isn't that the birth rate took a precipitous decline overnight. It is, we knew it was going no, to go it, down. There's a gradual decline in birth, but that's not the main thing that's going on. The main thing is – more and people are saying no to college because the costs have gone up. The benefits have sort of leveled off. You know, you still make more money with a 
college degree then with a high school diploma but the the, the gains there have uh, are not rising rapidly the costs are rising rap or have been rising rapidly and so more and more people are saying i can't afford it or it's too risky or maybe i'll compromise and go to a community college for two years and then if that works i'll go on to four-year school although i might add in that regard even the community college enrollments are down in fact they're down really more than the four-year school because of this flight to quality, everyone says, well, if I'm going to spend the money, I want to get the best diploma I can. I want to get a, go to a place where I'm almost assured of a job. So they want to go to Harvard or some school of that quality uh, or to the best state university in the state, the University of Michigan in the state of Michigan, for example, uh, uh, Penn State maybe in Pennsylvania, so on. I won't talk about Ohio, of right. course. Uh, I'm discreet here. Uh, but uh, <laughs> this is what's going on. And so it's, it's catching up, uh, I think. That's why enrollments are falling partly. And it seems, from what I've read, that they're falling across the board. They're falling in residential campuses. They are. They're falling in commuter campuses. Uh, what we used to call community college, they're even falling online from what the expectations were. Absolutely. Online, a lot of people thought online was going to take over. And online has had some modest growth, uh, some places fairly substantial growth. But there have been a lot of people who expected, oh, for example, these massive, uh, massive online uh, uh, courses, MOOCs, uh, to take over, you know, free courses you can right. take online. It hasn't worked that way. It just hasn't. So if we now switch from the cost side to the benefit side, um, I know that in one of your articles – uh, you said that we actually have too many college graduates to meet the number of professional, managerial, and even technical jobs that are available. Yeah, I mean, that's just a mathematical observation. I'm not making a political statement no, or no. a normative statement. I'm making a, a factual statement that uh, even though we have had a robust economy in the last few years and we've been adding a couple million jobs a year, two and a half million, even though the unemployment rate is 3.7%, even though the unemployment rate for college grads is 2.1%, uh, pretty low, uh, we, some of those people that are going out and graduating, they're not unemployed. They can get a job. They can become a bartender at the local bar or they can go to work at the local fast food restaurant or uh, maybe a Kroger's or a Walmart or somewhere like right. that. Uh, but can they get the kind of job they want? Well, the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York puts out what they call the underemployment rate, and that measures the number of, uh, of, of work, workers, mostly workers, uh, uh, among recent college graduates who are working in jobs that are traditionally filled by high school graduates uh, or even some cases less than high school. Uh, digging ditches or something. Uh, that unemployment rate for June, the last month they have da available data, was 41%. So 59%, yeah, did get these good, nice jobs, traditional jobs for college grad graduates. 41% didn't. 
And you'll say, well, that's a temporary thing. The first few months out of school, you sometimes will take a temporary job till you get the right job. And there is a little bit of that. There's some truth to that. But even among all college graduates, about one in three are in these underemployed type jobs. So if you went back to 1970 and you got in a taxi cab, what are the probability that that taxi cab driver would have had a bachelor's degree? Almost none. Almost none. One in every 150, less than 1%. Today, out of every 150, at least 25 have uh, bachelor's degrees. And it's, uh, I think it's nice to have taxi drivers with bachelor's degrees. I've, I've had some interesting conversation with Uber drivers and taxi drivers. But I don't think it's a necessary prerequisite to driving a taxi cab. I think a high school diploma in this age of Google Maps and everything else is, is plenty good. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other Bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. When I graduated from college in, in 1970, there was an expectation that I would make more, eventually, than my counterparts in high school who did not go to college. Absolutely. Now, some of them went to work in the factories with union jobs, and in the short term, they were making a whole lot more than I was, mm -hmm. even as a college graduate. But that at some point I surpassed yeah. in, in, in income. Are you saying that's not the way it's working now? It's, it's a different world now. Uh, when you have two-thirds of three-quarters of high school grads going on to do some sort of college, there's just not that many fancy jobs. We still need people to work in grocery stores. We still need people to drive Ubers. That may not be true forever. I admit, you know, technology may uh, have all cars being self-driven at some point in history, but it's not that way now. We need home health care aides, actually a very rapidly growing area to take care of old people. And a lot of that can be done with people with, a, with some common sense and a high school diploma. 
You don't need to, to just to, to help people uh, be fed and go to the bathroom and things like that. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a different world. And so the kid going to college says, well, I got to have a, a jump on my fellow classmates who are also going to college, so I will try to go to the best school I can. And so that's why at a school like Harvard, they get 20 applications for every one that they admit, or 25 sometimes. And where at other schools uh, uh, with lesser reputation, they're, they're having enrollment declines right now. And even schools of reasonably good quality, and uh, I think we, I have one in mind, and I think you know which one that is. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, our rumors are, you know, we're having enrollment problems at Ohio University. And the uh, University of Akron uh, uh, has gone from 29,000, I think, uh, 2010 maybe, to maybe 21,000, 20,000 now, down by eight, 9,000 students. Wright State was so broke a couple years ago, they were contemplating selling buildings in order to make the payroll. And uh, the, the governor demanded weekly reports on the financial condition of Wright State. It was so bad. And that's improved a bit, I think, but it's still, they had a strike at Wright State earlier this year. The faculty went on strike. Uh, they, uh, so uh, there are places in the United States, and particularly here in the Midwest, where there's a serious problem. We're, we're seeing massive uh, changes. Uh, for example, Western Michigan, uh, or excuse me, Eastern Michigan, uh, dropped from 25,000 uh, to 21,000. Yeah, we're seeing 20, 30 percent drops yeah. uh, 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 in some of the, the major universities in the Midwest. Yeah, and it's going back to the fact that it's a labor-intensive industry. And given the, some would say, peculiar traditions of higher ed that most people are given employment security at some point along the way. Most faculty are. They're given tenure at some point. It's pretty hard to get rid of these people. So uh, a I wouldn't want to be a university president these days, although I must say they're pretty well, comp <laughs> they're pretty well compensated. I wrote a column the other day saying I wouldn't buy a used car from a university president. I noticed the last time the president of Ohio University saw me, he wasn't quite as friendly as the previous <laughs> time. But uh, 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 it, it's tough. It's tough doing that job. How do you uh, reduce your costs uh, radically in an environment of falling enrollments? And in, when you have static uh, positions, as you said, yeah. faculty with tenure. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. Uh, people to uh, take care of the, the physical plant of the yeah. university. Uh, and so when people die or retire, we tend to not replace them sometimes. But sometimes that leads to inequity. Some poor department lose may have five people retire at once and they have a horrible shortage and on other departments have no one retire or, or leave and the, they're overstaffed, you know. So it's, uh, it's a job I wouldn't want to do these days. 
Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, and that is the influx of international students. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Midwestern, and I can only speak for that, Midwestern public universities relied heavily, as well as some privates, on the influx of international yeah. students. That, that spigot seems to have been tightened. That has been tightened. Part of it is uh, uh, nas- uh, national, you might say national politics and national security issues, I guess you'd call them. Uh, visa uh, re- restrictions have grown over time uh, for quite a number of years. Uh, and uh, Schools like even the University of California, Berkeley, one of the very best of our public universities, uh, was having cuts in their state budget. So how do they uh, meet their – how do they keep the place going? They they increase the number of -of out-of-state students who pay – $35,000 $35,000 tuition versus ten or $12,000. Uh, you, you fill up with a lot of $35,000 students, you, you can meet your budget. And that spigot has been closed down considerably. Enrollments have been falling internationally uh, at, at most schools. Um, and it's a shame, I think, from another point of view, and that's just it's nice to have sort of a geographic diversity among the student body, I think. You mentioned the Federal Reserve of New York, and I know in one of your articles you cited that uh, it said that 41.4 percent of recent college graduates in December 2018 were underemployed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we talked about the, the, the jobs not being there and so forth. But you go on in your um, sort of assessment of all of this and say – it also could be the quality of the students that colleges and universities are producing. Could yeah. you talk about that? Well, this is uh, uh, an area where it's very difficult to say things definitively because although colleges are in the knowledge business, we want to know things. That's what we do is know about things. One thing we don't know a lot about is whether our seniors who are graduating know an awful lot more than our freshmen? Or do the students at Ohio University, are they learning more in their four years in Athens compared with the same students over in Oxford, Ohio at Miami University? I would think maybe they are, but can I prove it? No. Uh, So there is a problem there. But there are, there's some evidence that is not very encouraging. One piece of evidence that you mentioned the year 1970, and I did too, Mm -hmm. back in the golden age when students were heroic and could walk (laughs) across the Hocking River and do all sorts of other feats that we could do back in the the 1960s, Tom. In the 1960s, the federal data, U.S. Department of Labor data show that the typical college student spent 40 hours a week in class, studying, writing papers, preparing for exams, doing the things that you do as part of your academic work, 40 hours a week, kind of the same as what their parents were working on the job. What do the data say today? Well, the parents are still working close to 40 hours a week. Uh, they take a few more days vacation than they did 50 years ago. There's 
we now have, what, Martin Luther King Day off and a couple other holidays, but minor changes among the adults. What about the college kids? The data now say the average is 27 hours a week. That's a one-third decline. Now, I talk to my students, and they say, oh, I work more than that. <laughs> and some of them do, but some of them don't. Some just, they can get away with murder, or they can get away with less studying. Part of the reason, and this is, again, a little controversial, but part of the reason is great inflation. You know, what's the incentive to work hard? I mean, you're going to get a B uh, in Parts of most universities, you can find areas where you can study where if you can write your name, you've got a B minus, and uh, exaggerating slightly, of course, right. but uh, uh, so the students aren't working hard. It's hard to learn if you don't put time in on it. So there's some evidence, and there's some other evidence, uh, the average SAT score or the average GRE score, graduate record exam score, today is a little lower than it was 50 years ago. Uh, that's not so true in math. In math, we've kind of done a little bit better, but in the verbal areas and the writing areas, we've seen declines. So the students today are uh, paying more uh, and maybe getting less, maybe. Uh, it's not sure because they come into college with less today than they did 50 years ago. Do you see this as a pattern of anti-intellectualism that's sort of sweeping the country, or is that too much of an overstatement? Well, I wouldn't be surprised that that dimension is operating to some extent. If you were a if I were a university president here in this conversation, I would point out correctly that state uh, government support, uh, let's call it appropriations, uh, if you adjust for enrollments and for inflation and all the other appropriate things, that state real appropriations per capita as a technical term are lower today uh, slightly than they were 25 years ago. Uh, they have not risen. And if you make the comparison of 12 years ago or 14 years ago, say 2005, mm -hmm. uh, they're down quite a bit because we took a big cut in the late part of the last decade after the financial crisis. Uh, state university budgets got cut in absolute dollar terms and enrollments were still, in fact, for a couple of years after that, enrollments went up. Kids couldn't get jobs, so they said, let's, well, let's go, go to, to college. college. <laughs> yeah. So kids were going to – more kids were going to college, and the college were getting less money. So the colleges, in one sense, have an, you know, the, an argument there that they're not getting money. Someone call that anti-intellectualism. One thing it is for sure, and there's a lot of data, Pew uh, Research Center right. uh, uh, does a lot of work on this. Pew has found, and Gallup has also, uh, that uh, public support of universities is less today than it was five years, 10 years, 15 years ago. Uh, people uh, are more skeptical of universities. Uh, there's a, a little bit of a political dimension to that. Republicans are more uh, negative towards universities than Democrats. That difference didn't really exist much 10 years ago. It's, it's sharpened. But even among uh, the Democrats, or particularly just add the whole population together, the total support has declined. 
And so here you are, a politician working in uh, Harrisburg or Columbus or wherever, uh, uh, some state capital, Indianapolis, and you have to face, well, do we uh, increase appropriations for the state university or do we fund uh, Medicare more uh, abundantly than we are? Or uh, how do we handle our limited resources? Or do we have to, and you know, wouldn't we rather cut taxes a little bit because we could win some votes that way? So the if public support for higher ed is falling a bit, it's you would expect politicians would be more reluctant about increasing budgets. And the evidence is that is the case. They're going up now. The economy has been booming the last few years, if not doing reasonably well. And uh, even here in Ohio, they're, they're a little higher, a little bit higher today than they were uh, two, three, four years ago. But they're not going up uh, by leaps and bounds like they used to go up to, uh, when uh, right after you graduated, right. at the time you were in school. So using your projections, what are we going to see in this area of higher education five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now? What are we going to see? Fewer universities, more uh, universities combining? Uh, what, what's the landscape going to look like? Well, economists, which I am, are the world's worst predictors. So, uh, you know, you... Well, that being said, what no, <laughs> what's going to What do I think is going to happen? Yeah. And besides, you're, no one is going to either, they're all going to be dead or forgot what I said 10, <laughs> 20 years from now, so I can get away with murder. There you go. Uh, no. Uh, the prevailing wisdom among people who have looked at this a lot, and I would add not I'll I put my name on the list, but I'll put the name. For example, there's a guy at Harvard called uh, Clay Christensen who runs an institute at Harvard University. Christensen predicts the number of colleges will decline by about one-half. Wow. The, uh, 50% mortality rate, if you want to use that term. Now, some of those – in fact, probably most of those colleges won't just simply disappear. What will happen is they'll merge. And uh, to put it in, let's put it in Ohio context. It would be as if Akron would merge with Kent State. They're 25 minutes apart uh, by car. Uh, there's no reason why you couldn't have one school serve both from a, a commu from a you know driving point of view. Uh, uh, and perhaps Miami with Cincinnati. Perhaps Miami like with Cincinnati, and uh, you know you can vision Toledo and Bowling Green. Right. Uh, the, uh, uh, in the state of Michigan, there are five state universities in or around the city of Detroit, which is a, a sort of a, a stagnant area population-wise, even declining area. There's you mentioned earlier, or maybe Eastern Michigan East, University. Eastern Michigan. Mi Eastern Michigan, of course, the University of Michigan. Michigan at Oakland, there's uh, which is uh, uh, there. Uh, uh, Wayne State University is there. So there are lots of universities. Well, maybe they, you know, people would say maybe we can get by with two or three out of, instead of five. I think that. Christensen estimates are probably a little on the high side, uh, and of course it depends what 
time period you're talking about, 10 years, five years, whatever. But I think there are going to be uh, some, uh, let's call it creative destruction is the word that the great economist Joseph Schumpeter used. Uh, uh, in, new, in the state of Vermont, which is a little dinky state, if I may say so, <laughs> uh, there have been five liberal arts colleges closed in the last year, five, in that one state. And uh, we are, haven't seen a lot in Ohio. There was a college up uh, ways up north, uh, Urbana College, or Banner University that I think has merged now into Franklin University. Antioch College. Antioch is uh, essentially a, uh, died and tried to resurrect, but it mostly dead. <laughs> and uh, uh, so that is going to continue to happen, I think, for a while. Uh, a couple of the big state universities have, are in some difficulty. There's, there's no question about it. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I think, uh, Akron's enrollments have gone down at least 25 percent over right. the last decade, and right states are down. Uh, quite a few of them are down. Um, uh, Ohio State is doing just fine. Miami is doing just fine. Uh, Cincinnati is doing okay. Uh, so the and these are schools which have pretty good reputations. Uh, reputation, uh, their reputations are pretty good. So again, even within the state systems, you get some sort of flight to quality. People are applying to the schools where they say, "Well, I'm going to a good school, so I should be able to get a job." The cost is about the same at all of these schools, so. Might as well go to the best ones I can get into. I think more and more people are saying things like that. One last thing, and that is residential campuses. Yeah. Uh, a lot of campuses, the one that we're sitting on, but we're, we're not atypical of a lot of them, have been residential campuses for the 18 to 22-year-old or 18 to 23-year-old population. That seems to be in peril. Well, it's a, it's a costly form of education. On the one hand, as people continue to get a little bit more prosperous over time, you would think people would say, I want the best for my kids, that they have been doing that. There's no doubt about that. And they would want to send their kids to residential schools, which are more expensive inherently than other schools. Uh, but on the other hand, it is expensive. And if, if you're not going to earn a lot more uh, much more money and if you got to run up a huge debt in order to do it and you, then you're going to have to live in the basement of your parents for the next five years afterwards while you work at Starbucks uh, uh, pouring coffee out for people, at that point people start to say, eh, maybe I can't afford to go to a residential school. Dr. Vetter, I'm always thrilled to read your columns uh, in Forbes and your op-ed pieces. Uh, thank you for talking. Well, I've enjoyed this a lot, Tom. It's fun. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Richard Vetter, economist, author, and columnist about the enrollment crisis facing many colleges and universities. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your many podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Again, that's Hodson at ohio.edu.